So Mark chapter 1, verse 12 is where we are. If you want to open your Bibles to Mark, it's also on the Oasis app. There's a few notes in there, uh, but we're just going to look a little bit here. So it says, after he was baptized, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So Jesus didn't get baptized and say, this is cool. We're going to have a five-year growing in Jesus after my baptism party before I really step into ministry. You know, I need some time. I just got baptized last year. I'm still, I'm still a child in the faith. You know, and so Jesus got baptized, and look what happened. The Spirit, after five years, no, it's not what the Bible said, right? The Spirit immediately immediately drove him out into the Florida Keys. Yeah, all of us say amen at that point. I'm like, I'm there. Where does he take him? To the wilderness. Immediately. The spirit, not Satan, not the deceiver, the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Immediately, we're gonna we're gonna chomp on that a little bit as we go. Next verse, verse thirteen, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This harkens back to the wilderness where the Israelites left Egypt. They were in bondage to slavery. They went through the sea that Moses parted by the power of God. They went through, the Egyptians came through and it tore through and it, what should have been a six week journey took 40 years. There's some symbolism here. Just follow along with that. Um, so he was in that wilderness and it also says that he was with the wild animals. So I want to bring context. Last week we talked that Jesus was discussing or that Mark was written at the time Nero was persecuting Christians. So right now they had Nero was putting those skins of wild animals onto the Christians to be fed to the feral dogs. So if you picture Jesus at this point was taken out into the wilderness, is the wilderness a good place? Is it an exciting place to be? No, nope. I mean, Wilderness, as we would think of in the desert, I mean, in the wilderness, to be some of us outdoor people would like that, but this is not a place of life and living. This is a place of difficulty and uh, temptation. So it's said that he was in the wilderness 40 days and he was being tempted by Satan. So what I want to talk with you, I want to go through this next thing, and I know you can't see some of these words, but I'm going to break it down for you. Listen to these words, text out of context, and this is all in your Bible app, so you can pull this up and look at it closer. Text out of context is pretext for proof text. Anyone want to define that for me? I had to look this stuff up, just to be honest. So the text out of context is pretext for proof text any text out of context. So text, let's we'll start with the first word, text. It is a written or printed book or work regarded in terms of its content rather than its physical form. So this is known as a text 
not because uh, we look at it as a Bible, but it's the Bible because of the words that are in it. Is that fair to say? So any text, whatever it is, you just want to put it in there, any text that without a context, so we have a text, written words together, without a context. What does context mean? The circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement or idea, and in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. So the context is immensely important in Scripture. Not just the context in the verses before and the verses after, but the context of what happened and what is quoted to and alluded to in the Old Testament. We have to understand the context with which, if we're going to narrow it down to Scripture, that's what I'm doing today, we're going to have to understand the context, not just the words before and after, and the Old Testament history that builds upon it in order to understand the text. So text out of context. So the illustration that's given up to you there is on the top of the iceberg. It says, judge not that you be not judged. If you turn the TV on, I've said this before, you'll see Christians and non-Christians alike going, oh no, judge not. You're judging right now. You know the Bible says judge not, not says you, you know, you're gonna be, you can't be judging. You're all this, oh, judge not, judge not, judge not. It's like, wait a second. That is text out of context. So I'm going to read some of the verses under the, uh, the iceberg. For with what judgment you judge, so it's okay, you're going to be judging, you will be judged, and with what measure you use it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider? So we do see the speck in everyone else's eye, right? But he's saying, we, if we do... We need to what? We need to consider something. We need to consider the plank in our own eyes. So there's some work to be done before we become judges. Judging other Christians. I know, you know, there's some new people here or whatnot. All right, I don't want you to take me out of context. In the context of Christians, I need to be in relationship with you before I can bring you to a point, I can judge you because I don't know your circumstances. I just, I think I know the truth, but actually I just know the circumstances. So I need to understand the circumstances and be in relationship before I can judge you. So if there's someone here I haven't met, right, I can just run up to you right now and go, oh, you're doing this, this is wrong. I can't do that. I need to step back and take a minute. So Let's go back to the text. Te- or text out of context is pretext. Pretext is a reason given in justification of a course of action that is not the real reason. Pretext, a reason given in justification of a course of action. So I'm going to do something. I'm going to give a reason to do something based on not a real reason. So the Bible goes there, and I'm going to just quote it. I'm a Christian in a church, and I'm like, you, oh, I'm not going to judge. And I'm just going, I'm not going to judge because the Bible says I'm not going to judge. Or maybe I know what's underneath the iceberg, and I don't want to go there, so I just quote that one verse, and I'm cool with it. 
You know, I don't want to take everything, the whole word of God. I just want to parcel it down to a couple of those Bible cup verses that make me feel warm and fuzzy and comfortable. And so I take those verses out of context. One of, one of the favorite ones I addressed this about a year ago was, um, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to tell you, I can't go run a marathon today. It would be a miracle. Can God do a miracle? Yes. Can I run a marathon? No. I can't take that verse out of context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But in that context, it was given with Paul being in prison and rejoicing in his suffering. We can't take and make a pretext based off of taking something out of context. So when you read the Bible, you need to understand that the text has context and we cannot make pretext because it's comfortable for us. It also says text out of context is pretext for proof text. Proof text is the practice of using isolated, out-of-context quotations from a document to establish a proposition in eisegesis. Now, these are like a lot of big words. I'm going to have to read that again. Proof text. So when we take text, we take a word out of the Bible, and we take it out of context, and then we establish something that we want and we pull that, we establish something that we want, we put our interpretation into the document that was never intended for us to do. It's easy to do in Scripture. I've done it as a pastor. I'm quite sure if you're a Christian this morning, you have done it and maybe not even been aware that you do it. We quote stuff. I think one of the ones I hear often from non-Christians, well, I know it says in the Bible that God will never put more on me than I can handle, amen. First off, it's not in the text. And so we take something that we like and we're comfortable with. Oh, God's not. So that means that I can handle this, God, that you trust me. I'm your super Jesus marathon running Christian. And I can do it all things. I can do all things through Christ's sake to me because you're not going to put on this because I am able. No. No. He puts stuff on us to take away any concept of our ability. And he takes all of our dependence on ourselves away in order to bring us dependent on Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit. Ryan, were you going to say something? Okay. So, eisegesis. If you're a Christian, we've probably all done eisegesis. We have put our interpretation into the text. And we form some of the models we live by based on what we think the texts say when actually we've just done what we want the text to say. And we try to bend it to fit the rules. You know, oh, we got to do this. this. This is this. As a Christian, 
Our job, if you're a Christian today and you read the Bible or if you want to read the Bible and you're not a Christian, you're just sort of studying and just want to see, is this, is this stuff that these sort of weird people are saying true? Don't be someone that puts your interpretation in. See what the Bible actually says about it. And so that done properly is called exegesis. We pull out of the scripture what it is intent to say, what it's intending to say. So we don't pull out of when God, it says God will bless you. We don't pull out a Kenneth Copeland that I'm going to claim an airplane jet to, that costs $20 million to fly around the world when, you know, because I am blessed by God. I probably shouldn't have said that. We pull this out. You know, uh, the Babylon Bee, if you, don't, if you like satire, you got to watch satire. It said that um, es- es- archaeologists have excavated and pulled out of a, a Boeing jet from the ground that Jesus flew on. <laughs> proving the text about prosperity. Now, is being rich a sin? Absolutely not. Is having finances? No. No, not at all. But we take these things out of what warms our hearts. So, oh yeah, God's not going to give more on you. You're, you're this, you're more. And you are more than a conqueror in who? In Jesus, in Christ. So as Christians, text, we got to make sure that text out of context is pretext for proof text. Don't allow yourself to develop proofs from scripture that are based on your own opinions. Find out what the scripture has to say. Does that make sense? So let's, let's make sure so that's, we're not even got into the text yet. <laughs> it's sort of funny. Uh, so we know that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. This next thing up here says, the temptation establishes the free sovereign agency of Jesus, who like all human agents must choose to make God's will his own. We have to choose, if you're a Christian, we have to choose as to whether we're going to say, yes, I'm a disciple of Christ, and I am going to be tempted. Now, I want you to understand, the the Greek word is more parsed when you view it towards testing. From God, it is a test. From Satan, it is a temptation. God doesn't tempt you and say, let's just see if we can make them fall, ha, ha, ha. No, he wants to put us in a place where we put our utter, utter dependence on him, he tests us in order for our faith to grow. So this temptation, this testing took place, it it points back, and I'll have a lot of time to go into this, it goes back to Adam and Eve. Now what is different from Adam and Eve and Jesus in the wilderness is Jesus was alone, first off. Adam had Eve. So Adam and Eve had a relationship Jesus was alone. Jesus, however, was in a desert. Where was Adam and Eve? Garden of Eden, best place ever, right? Before sin, everything's good. And we see that during Adam and Eve's temptation that they had the lush gardens, they had the food, their bellies were filled, everything was good, and still they wanted more. It wasn't good enough. The opposite, Jesus was alone, not completely alone, mind you, we'll get to that, but he was alone in the desert and Satan came up and confronted him. 
So if you have your Bibles, it's going to be up here too. You can turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at this temptation. And we're going to break it down into three different areas. There's three different temptations. Matthew 4, 1 says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, right? The Spirit know this is going to happen? Took him there on purpose, right? And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he, he was hungry. That's like the obvious, right? That's like Captain Obvious there. He was hungry after 40 days. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, Often when this is preached, and it's truly preached, the response from Jesus is, it is written. However, I want to just propose out there for the American church, for a lot of folks in the American church, I don't even know how many people know what was written. And so for me to go up here and go, just say it is written, and quote a verse, I would say it's maybe not good enough for us. And there's more into this statement in context of what is being said than is, is in there. So Satan comes first through the intellect. He comes through the intellect, which in, in turn turns to materialism. It's like, what can I get more. If I get, if I can have this, I should have this. I'm a child of God. He just left, he just left his baptism where God said, I am pleased. My, this is my beloved son. I love him. And Satan's begin to question the intellect. Well, wait a minute, you're a son or daughter. Maybe you've asked this of God and you're just going, wait a minute, should I be treated like this because I'm, I'm one of God's children? Satan came at the intellect, came at and started asking questions, begun to just dishevel this. And some of us, I'm not saying all, some of us in this room has given over the battle of our intellect and have begun to become uh, more materialistic than we have uh, disciples of Jesus Christ. What can I get as to rather what can I give? And I'm not pronouncing judgment on anyone. Remember, judge not lest you be not judged. Uh, so so I, I'm just saying that it is, we need to understand that when we give in to Satan's battles, we begin to believe a lie and we begin to gather things that we think are gonna bring us happiness. We become materialistic. Americans have aced this. Absolutely aced it in so many ways. It's all about the Benjamins. It's all about it. You know, and so Satan came at him and said, look, you're hungry? Get some bread. God shouldn't treat you like that. Just turn the stones into bread. Did Jesus do it? Nope. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want to propose to you, too, that the word that proceeds from the mouth of God has to conform with this, but also is spoken to our spirits. It has to be aligned with Scripture, but it, has, it, it can come to us. If you're not taking time to listen and to read and digest and be quiet before God, 
I begin to question whether we actually hear the word of God. We become great uh, quoters of verses and not hearers of the living word. There are churches that read from the Old Testament and New Testament every week that don't believe even what they're reading. The word can be spoken and fall to the ground. But God's word to God's people who are listening flourishes. <laughs> Part two. <laughs> Matthew 4, 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw, your, throw yourself off this cliff if you're the son of God. Did the devil know he was the son of God? But again, he began to throw those doubts in, right? He knew, or Jesus knew, that he was already going to throw himself down. He was going to throw himself upon that cross and be crucified, the excruciating, the worst kind of pain. That's where that word came from, the Greek. Excruciating, the cross, everything that come from within. He was already going to do that. Jumping would have been easy. Remember Jonah? Some of you who have been here since we've gone to Jonah. Jumping off the boat is easy. Walking the life of Jesus that Jesus calls us to is hard. So Satan says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you. And that's in Psalms. We're going to read that later. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. So now he begins to press against the will. So we hit the intellect sort of the first, and now it's sort of the will. Just jump. Just do this, and it's a battle of the will. And some of us, if you're in Christ, you are in a battle of the will now. Do I do what my will is, or do I do what God's will is? It is a battle. I'm telling you, it's easy. If you're not a Christian this morning, it's easier when you don't have to battle that will. I just do whatever I want. I don't have to be conformed into anything. I just do whatever I want. So this battle of the will leads to another big word uh, called utilitarianism. I have to say it twice. The doctrine that an action is right as long as it promotes happiness and that the greatest happiness of the greatest number should be the guiding principle of conduct. As long as it's good for most people, it's good for me. And so these are slippery slopes. You know, just don't go to the end and go, I would never do that. Look at the very beginning of it. When you begin to conform and do the things that oppose to what God has called you to do, you begin the slippery slope. And then you begin to justify everything you believe. You, your intellect begins shat gets shattered. Your will becomes shattered. And you're becoming more and more conformed to the things of the world. This happens to Christians every day. Christians want to judge the world and push the world down. We're not supposed to do that, but it happens to us. And so it becomes what's more about the greatest happiness for the greatest amount of people as opposed to being obedient to what God says. Matthew 4, 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and... Uh, kingdom of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. 
Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So this third part, it's where Satan is attacking our imagination. Ravi Zacharias talks about this. He doesn't come in through the front end of our intellect. He doesn't come in through what I can or cannot do. He becomes, tends to come in and he attacks our imagination. It is the ethical, our imagination is the, eth, or it turns into hedonism. And that is the ethical theory that pleasure in the satisfaction of desires is the highest good and proper aim of human life. Then it's all about our pleasure. You know, we, um, this Me Too movement has been pushing and exposing and opening the level of depth of sexual darkness that people can get into when they come out of God's created order and begin seeking their own pleasure. And, you know, you can look at Kevin Spacey, Weinstein, there's some, uh, gosh, there's other people, there's um, been accusation, I want to be careful not to judge someone guilty unless it, you know, gets ruled out there, but the thing is, we're seeing expose, expose, Nasser, the guy with the gymnast, he begins to do stuff, it begins about his pleasure, not what's happening to these ladies, the gymnast, he begins to do what he thinks is right in his own eyes, and his imagination is good, it's good, it's good, and things are never good enough. And even in the, uh, the Netflix show, uh, I read this thing on Kevin Spacey where uh, he portrays the president, uh, House of Cards. If y'all watching that, you shouldn't apparently. Um, he has this three-way relationship with his wife and his bodyguard, Secret Service guy. Together. And that's what's getting portrayed into our environment and it's becoming more and more the norm and we wonder why everyone in the world is abusing sexuality and not using it God's way and doing it what's right in their own eyes and why our world's gotten darker and darker and darker because we say Satan comes in and says well you should just do this because it feels good it's going to make you happy and this is not to be pushing the outside Hollywood world because the numbers of pornography and adultery inside the church are staggering and we have nothing to be proud of. So we get hit with our intellect, we get hit with our will, we get hit with our imagination. In his book, Can Man Live Without God? Ravi Just raise your hand if you're sure. <laughs> can man live without God it says this he talks about the story it's about a man named Malcolm Muggeridge he was a journalist in India some of you might have heard the story this man was on the side of a river and from a distance he sees this woman bathing and he begins to lust after her, over her. And you, you can think about David and Bathsheba there, right? See this, you see, it's like, oh, you know, this is going on. And so he begins to swim. And he sees 
a beautiful woman from a distance. He sees this picture of her bathing long way away. He can swim, and he swims, and he swims, and he swims, and he's getting tired, and he swims, and he swims, and he finally gets on the beach, and he walks up to this woman, and he sees that she is a leper. Her nose has begun to deteriorate. Her hands are starting to, her fingers, her digits are starting to fall off. Her skin is messed up. And he looks at her and he goes, oh my God, you're a dirty leper. And then it hit him. He was not a Christian. But that point began to make him realize that the dirty person in that picture was him. He hungered after something that was not meant for him. He, he strived for something. He looked after his own happiness. He followed his own will. He, he eisegeted his life in a sense and said, this is going to be good for me, not even thinking about what happens. And if you watch the video of that young lady that brought the Nasser thing out, and she expounds how scripture talks about how God judges and how God loves and there's forgiveness and there's stuff, you will see proper exegesis of the text. But this man who swam across the river finally realized that it's within his own heart that was evil. And he began his quest for God. When it comes to happiness, we see it too in the fairy tales that we read. If you do this, you have till midnight right? Because something's going to happen. You're going to turn into a pumpkin. You know, you're going to lose this. You're going to lose that because in all our fairy tales, there's a cost. If you're sleeping around, you might get a sexually transmitted disease. If you're going outside of God's context in marriage, this might happen. If you are doing this, then this might happen. And so we're searching after happiness, but we don't realize that it comes to a bunch of dead ends in our life, that our fairy tales, in essence, there are always boundaries to good things. I don't know if you've ever been on a vacation, and some of you are going to laugh at me, where you're ready to get back to work. Am I the only one that's felt that? (laughs) (laughs) Our life is not meant to be a continual vacation. And we have rewired our minds and believed the lie that this will make me happy. This will make me good, and it it falls apart. And so Jesus in all this, he responded that God's will is more important than my will, and God is the only one who I'm going to bear witness to and bow my, my knee to, and God's way is the only way I'm going to follow. He set and he modeled for us what we are to do. So don't get all all high and mighty and go, well, I'm not turning a piece of stone to some bread. I'm not going to go do that. Oh, no. But you're finding some way to do what you want to do. We are finding ways to do what we want to do that contradict the will of God. Look at Deuteronomy 8, and I'm going to fly through this. I know I'm going a little bit over here. 
this going back to the wilderness, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in, where? Your heart. Whether you would keep his commands or not. So many of us know what the wilderness feels like. Been there? I'm going to raise two hands. Have y'all been some wilderness action? Do we want to blame Satan for that mess? Well, Satan took me into the wilderness. No, God takes us into the wilderness to expose what's in our own hearts. And this morning, you have to ask yourself a question. We need to ask ourselves a question. Are we rewriting scripture to justify our lifestyles and things we say and do and think and act upon? Or is there stuff that's coming out that we don't like and we don't want to acknowledge and actually we've not even tried to fix because we've done it our way? So Satan first comes to the intellect, which yields materialism, comes through the will, which leads to utilitarianism, and through our imagination, which leads to hedonism. Psalms 91, I'm just going to breeze through this. Uh, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him, because he knows my name. Jesus was not alone. Therefore, you and I in Christ are never alone. In the desert, in the darkness, in our suffering, when things don't feel right, when it stinks, when life just rots apart, we are not alone. So lastly, we're going to look at uh, this, our, this graphic, what did Jesus do? So we want to make our lives make a mark, make your mark like Jesus. How are you making your thumbprint on this world? So last week we talked that Jesus came out of heaven and he came into a difficult place. He was baptized, he was obedient to baptism and he got um, filled with the spirit, presence came down there. But this morning we talked about who Jesus is and how he refuted um, Satan I want to ask you this morning, if you've not placed your trust in Christ, a lot of times we can throw a lot of stuff around. But I want to ask you, is your thinking that there's not enough evidence for Jesus more about the suppression of the evidence that you are doing or more about the lack of evidence? Let me, say, let me try to say it again. Do you think that you are talking about the absence of evidence for you or the suppression of evidence by you? There is enough evidence historically. You go back, if you take the time to study, if you exegete the scripture, if you exegete the documents and you look back historically to prove that Jesus lived on this earth, to prove that he came, that he died, and he resurrected. That's not under great conflict from historians. 
But now we tend to give all our reasons. And as a non-Christian, if you are if you are questioning or you're just totally against, that's fine. You're safe place here to do that. But I just want to say, is it more about the lack of evidence or the suppression of evidence that you are pushing down to justify the things that you want to do? Because you're using your intellect, your will, and your emotional happiness and hedonism to do things your own way. There's freedom from that found in Christ. For Christians and non-Christians, there's freedom from that. But if you're a non-Christian, it simply says, come to him with nothing. The team sang it beautifully today. There's nothing I bring. I don't bring perfection. I don't bring good works. I don't bring uh, a happy family. I don't bring this great job or this great success. I bring nothing. I come empty, and he fills me. He promises to do that for you. So I just ask that you all, if you all would stand. The worship team comes up. We take communion every week. Communion is meant to be taken by people who consider themselves Christians and consider Jesus as Lord, just not sort of tipping a hat to him. If you're not a Christian this morning and, and maybe some of these words provoked you, maybe you felt the push to be, become and search after happiness. Maybe this day, instead of coming up, you come up and ask for prayer for someone to pray for you. Just invite Jesus to come into your life. Say that he's your Savior and Lord. You can do that at your seat. You can do that at home tonight. But ask him and he will answer. Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to communion, I pray as your people, Lord, that we will fight the testing and the temptation, Lord, by being joyfully obedient to your word not words that we make up or words that we mangle to fit our way, but words that have value because you wrote them and you speak them. Lord, may that be our prayer today as we come. In Jesus' name, amen. Please.